I came to explore the wreck. The words are purposes. The words are maps. I came to see the damage that was done and the treasures that prevail. What was your main area of representation? Miscellaneous, petty crime. Yeah. As it is now. Yeah. <laughs> Jack Delziel practices out of the small office of law firm Allinghouse and Linda in North Melbourne. He has short brown hair and wears glasses. The combination gives him a bookish look. Jack has a deadpan way about him and the good manners often found in those raised in country Australia. Like so many Australians over Easter 2003, he'd been following the story of the Pong Sioux after news broke of the massive heroin bust on the Victorian coast and the dramatic sea chase that followed. Suspected drug mothership, the Pong Sioux, under control of the Navy and police, being shepherded towards Sydney Harbour. It followed a dramatic joint military and police operation to take control of the container ship. The Pong Sioux had repeatedly ignored warnings to stop. The Navy was alerted, the frigate Stewart ordered to the area. You put out a warship with a five-inch gun on board and people do pay attention. What Jack saw stirred him into action. Well, originally I sent a letter to the embassy just aware these people needed some sort of legal help and I wrote to the embassy because there's no one else to write to in Australia in relation to North Korea. Jack still can't put a finger on it, but somehow the way the Pong Su was being covered by the Australian media annoyed him. Well, it, it may sound strange to say, but there was a sort of a smirking attitude about the chase of the ship somehow in the news. A small armada of Australian police, customs and defence boats aided by overhead patrols from Air Force and Coast Watch planes, surrounded the ship out to sea from Newcastle. The guided missile frigate Stewart brought in to drive the message home. Coming over the horizon at uh, 25 knots uh, and using our presence as a warship to demonstrate that force that a warship uh, with commitment and purpose uh, has a job to do. And I could sense, I believe that I could, that they were under some pressure and they didn't know how to deal with the situation and needed lawyers. <laughs> so it sounds odd to say, but I felt sorry for their situation, despite what they were accused of, but uh, they just seemed to be a little bit um, trapped. We never heard back until, and I really can't tell you, but one, two, three weeks later, some people showed up in response to it. What showed up at your at office? At my office, yeah. Out of the blue? Out of, yeah, unexpected, out of the blue. And what did they say? Uh, they wanted to meet us, of course, and see who these lawyers were. They had a copy of the letter and introduced themselves. It turned out the men had flown all the way from North Korea just to meet him. They were representatives of the Pongsu Shipping Company. And, and one particular fellow just had, you know, excellent English. <laughs> this is how Jack, a modest suburban solicitor who never sought the limelight, got himself the case of a lifetime. Last episode, we heard about the hidden forces powering the Pong Su drama, most notably the mysterious Division 39, the special North Korean government agency that runs illicit money-making operations for the cash-starved regime. The money is the most important thing for Kim family, and there is no any moral in it. Once the ship was captured, 
Police weren't getting any answers from the Pongsu crew or the onshore party about who was financing the scheme. Yeah, he, he was uh, quite smug and said, you'll, you'll never link it to us. The police fared better when it came to finding the rest of the heroin, though, thanks in part to the GPS device found on Wong, one of the two men who had brought the drugs ashore. But it was the GPS that ultimately was the undoing. This episode looks at what happens when the little fish get caught in the net of the law. Who gets taken and who gets away? They were very friendly. There was no English. And um, they were fearless. <laughs> Jack didn't meet any of the Pongsu crew while they were being processed by Australian immigration officers in Sydney. He got to know them when they were transferred to the high-security Barwon Prison, 60 kilometres from Melbourne, on a dusty stretch of road outside the Victorian town of Lara. Through an interpreter, Jack spoke with the men about the unfolding legal process. All 30 men were to face a committal hearing at the Melbourne Magistrates Court to determine if there was enough evidence against each of them to stand trial for aiding and abetting the heroin importation. Barwon Prison is big, which meant all the crew could stay together. I know some prison officers who worked at Barwon back then, and they reckon the Pongsu men were among the most pleasant inmates they'd ever had. Clean, punctual, avid gardeners, and they followed orders. But my sense was that living in Barwon Prison, which would be hard for most citizens to go to, was water off the duck back to them. And as, perhaps just a hard life on a ship, in a vessel. I'm not necessarily saying it was because they had a hard life overseas. They just seemed, they were tough. Not, not in a macho sense, but just in the sense that they could endure <laughs> difficulties without, without complaint, I would say. As he got used to the jailed crew members, Jack formed a view that Master Sun was the undisputed boss on land as well as at sea. Any, everyone who met him liked him. I just say this, he, he had no aggressive or, or negative attitude towards the prosecutors or despite his situation. He was a very sort of charismatic man. He was funny. and he, he, I think he would have been seen to be an honourable man. I know he was charged with bringing his ship out with drugs and what have you, but he himself as a person, I don't think anyone would have thought of him as a, as a hood or a you know, a dishonest sort of person. He had a lot of grandkids that I, as far as I could gather, and um, I think he got married at 14. It was at Barwon Prison that two people we heard from at the start of this series, South Korean pastor Noah Park and North Korea observer Jacko Zveltslut, also got to know Master Sun and the rest of the crew. Like Jack Dalziel, Jacko felt a kind of affinity with the North Koreans, even before he met them. How did I get involved? Uh, I remember... Uh, first of all, watching the footage on the news in 2003 of the ship being caught by the Australian Navy, of the, the special forces, you know, coming down from the uh, the helicopter and boarding the ship, and then 30 or so North Korean men uh, looking, you know, very unhappy, uh, being arrested and, and taken off the ship. And at that stage, I was uh, living in Melbourne with my wife, who's Korean, and uh, I thought, uh, you know, these men probably don't have a lot of friendly faces going down to visit them, so I speak some Korean, why don't I go down and you know, bring them some dictionaries and some, uh, some reading material and, and just sort of see how they're doing. So it was more of, it was basically it was partly out of curiosity and partly out of just uh, humanitarian, you know, go down and, and, and be a, 
uh, a friendly face for these uh, North Korean guys. Jacko also felt the North Koreans were happy enough in their prison surroundings. They didn't have any uh, Australians around them except for the, the guards or the warders. And they had the free reign of that particular wing. You know, they had uh, a little recreation area with uh, table tennis tables. They had a microwave or two that they were allowed access to. And I, I talked to the warders and they said uh, quite openly, these are very well behaved uh, men. You know, we don't get any trouble from them. Of course, you know, they're not used to the Australian diet. Um, and that's where I met the the pastor who you mentioned, uh, who's from the mission to seafarers, who was bringing in some North Korean food. So they were allowed to uh, to prepare some uh, food items for themselves. And, uh, it, it, you know, it seemed to be OK that. They didn't seem to be too dispirited uh, or angry. They just you know, wondered uh, when things were going to get a move on and they could uh, get out of here. There were times, though, when the North Koreans were extremely wary of visitors. Even Noah Park, the mission to seafarers pastor. Although Noah was a former seaman, he was born in South Korea. So when, when I was in the first time in, in the Bowen prison, that I would talk to with a group really, you know, careful listening that, don't talk about that one, you know. Someone was telling the crew, don't, don't talk about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, don't eat the other that one. Before that, they suspicious me, you know, because he's, a, oh, he's a what doing that one, you know. Noah can't recall which Pongsu crew member told the others to be careful what they said. But in time, the North Koreans came to accept Noah as a supporter who provided comfort and didn't ask too many questions. Helping them, yeah. no politics, no some issues or drug. And During like, their yeah. prison visits, Jacko and Noah met the Pongsu crew's lawyer, Jack Delzeal. They were also introduced to some other important men, the ones who turned up unexpectedly at Jack's office, who had travelled from North Korea. They were presenting themselves as the Pongsu's private owners. Noah recalls one of these men being quite intimidating, Actually, one of the owner to Bongsu Shipping. Yeah. He's a little bit tough man. He's very, mm, some of the leaderships then, you know. So, but he's followed, uh, actually have to follow the North government the policy then, you know. The North Koreans were adamant the Pongsu was privately owned and had nothing to do with the North Korean regime, the same official position the North Korean government was taking. According to Kim Jong-il's regime, the ship and its business were separate from the state. Jacko, who now lives in Seoul and works with the NK News website and podcast, also got to meet one of the Pongsu's so-called owners at Barwon Prison. There was also another North Korean man who wasn't one of the prisoners, and he introduced himself to me as Mr. John, uh, who was one of, I believe, seven directors of the Pongsu Shipping Company. Now, according to what he said, he said it was a, a privately owned uh, shipping company, and there were seven co-owners or seven directors. He was one of them. And they had sent him down with uh, a large sum of money to hire good legal representation and represent these men. And so he hired uh, a QC, Peter Farris. Uh, and a QC, for those non-Australian, non-British listeners out there, is a uh, Queen's Council. That's the uh, most expensive type of lawyer you can find in the British Commonwealth. Peter Farris was one of Melbourne's best-known barristers at the time. Street smart and pugnacious, he was ideally suited to the case. He'd previously been the chairman of Australia's National Crime Authority, the country's top criminal intelligence agency. He knew where to find the weaknesses in any police investigation. 
Despite their sympathy for the crew, Noah and Jacko both found the notion the Pongsu could be privately owned in such a hardcore socialist regime hard to get their heads around. The first time I didn't understand what is private company in North Korea then? I didn't take his uh, his representation of being a privately owned company too seriously, but I just, you know, I sort of took that on, uh, on board and said, okay, well, that's how he wants to represent it because they, they, the, the North Korean state obviously wants um, to, to create some distance between itself and what's happening here. I mean, no... Uh, no North Korean can travel internationally without uh, state permission anyway. Um, so it's not like he could just, you know, rustle up 100000 or $200,000 to hire a QC and then hop on a flight to Melbourne, particularly because when I met him, he was traveling alone, which is, you know, as people who study North Korea uh, are aware, that's not common. It's not common for a single North Korean person to come by him or herself overseas uh, carrying a large sum of cash. That's That's not normal. The man Noah and Jacko met in Barwon Prison, the one who called himself an owner or director of the Pongsu, was called John Hack Bomb. We'll learn more about him soon. Yeah, it's, it's a nice room. It's nice and bright. Yeah. A number of the rooms that are quite dark. We're in the Victorian Supreme Court chambers of Justice John Champion. He has an elevated view of Melbourne's Little Burke Street through lovely arched windows. You might pick up a bit of street noise because uh, out of here there's cars that yeah. slam doors and toot horns and stuff like that. John's chambers have an ornate wooden bookcase from ceiling to floor full of leather-bound books. There's a sliding ladder to reach the highest shelves. It looks like the kind of office a professor at Hogwarts might have. On the wall outside the door to his chambers hangs a court sketch of Master Sun, political secretary Choi and two other Pongsu crew members. I remember where I was when Pongsu happened. And I was down at our beach house uh, on the south coast, on the other side, over near uh, Sorrento Bligari. And it was a terrible Easter. Weather was terrible. It was one of those Easters that was cold and wet. Uh, And that was when Pongsu happened and it was starting, as I recall it, to just sort of develop on TV. So I followed it a little bit over that Easter period and then in the week I got back to work and I was at that time in-house counsel at the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions, CDPP, and I was aware of the fact that it was obviously a federal police case. The outcome was going to be that likely that the, the Commonwealth DPP would be engaged. John and his team of prosecutors had to turn all the evidence gathered by the federal police into a case that would prove beyond reasonable doubt that all the men aboard the Pong Su were colluding to traffic drugs. It wasn't going to be easy. The North Koreans denied all knowledge of the heroin and the rubber dinghy used to get it ashore. They also claimed that they'd never seen Tarsar Wong and his companion on board the ship. Their story was that it was pure coincidence that the Pong Su had stopped for engine repairs in the same place and at the same time as the drug couriers were waiting on shore. They claimed the only reason they were in Australia was because they'd been assigned to pick up some BMW cars in Melbourne by what turned out to be a fictitious charter company from Malaysia. So you get a lot of things told to you by police that uh, are theories. In, in criminal cases, we've got to run on evidence that's capable of being adduced fairly and be able to be challenged. John raises a vital point here. 
despite the strong suspicion that the Pongsu drug run couldn't have happened without the involvement or blessing of the North Korean government, there was no direct evidence. The long chase at sea had given the Pongsu crew and people back in North Korea time to put together a story everyone could stick to and the opportunity to throw who knows what incriminating evidence overboard. Though none of this dampened prosecutor John Champion's excitement about the case. Uh, it was an adventure involving a ship that had come from North Korea via China down through Singapore, through, down through Jakarta and down the Australian coast carrying contraband. And it had aspects of Australian police forces on the water, aspects of the Navy coming down rope onto the deck of a moving ship. One of the first things John did was to go to Sydney Harbour's Garden Island Naval Base to see the Pong Su for himself. Oh, I found that really remarkable. I had not had previous experience of being on a large ship. Uh, the ship was in very poor condition. Well, the, the evidence that we were able to run in the trial was clearly that the ship would not have been allowed to legitimately come into Australian waters and, and dock. There are certain requirements and standards that the maritime authorities impose on ships coming into Australian waters. This was not of the quality of a ship that would have been allowed in. People who were looking after it, and there were people that were main, trying to maintain it in a fit condition for Sydney Harbour, were sort of were saying that it was really a bit of a rust bucket. Seeing the condition of the Pong Su gave John an insight into the harshness of daily life for her crew. It gave him some sympathy for the men he was working to convict. They were, they were hardened seafarers. They lived lives that were tough and difficult, weather-beaten, very disciplined. These men, in, in one sense, had to be respected for who, who they were. Men who led very tough lives, who were carrying out an exercise possibly that was something they were ordered to do and had very little choice about. From early on, it became clear to John that if the prosecution was to have any success in getting the Pongsu crew committed for trial, they had to focus on the most senior men on the ship. Well, who knew? Uh, did the political secretary know? Uh, or did the master of the ship know? Was he aware of what it was that was on board and, and where it might have been kept. Certainly Lee's passport was false uh, and that came back through official channels through the network. That it was not his true identity. This was the moment federal police detective Celeste Johnston learned that Lee, one of the members of the onshore syndicate assigned to collect the heroin at Lawn, wasn't who he claimed to be. Lee's the man who was worked up about Lamb not answering his phone on the night the Pong Su appeared at Boggley Creek. It's unreasonable. At least pick up the phone and tell us what's going on. My cock is bigger than his head. He's also the one who boasted to his junior colleague, Teng, how he'd got a fake driver's licence past immigration at Sydney Airport. I'm so lucky they didn't find it. Everything else was given to them. They took it all for photocopying. After his arrest in Lawn, Lee told police, in good English, that he knew nothing about any heroin. A prohibited import into Australia, do you understand that allegation? Yes. OK. Now, you have the, the legal right to... Uh... But I did not do that. I did not do that. OK. 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 
The legal case was two-pronged. Although the Pongsu crew and the onshore party of Lee, Tang, Wong and Lam were appearing at the same Melbourne court to determine if there was enough evidence for each to stand trial, the Australian prosecutors, led by John Champion, were essentially running two cases. One was pretty easy, the other extremely difficult. The strongest case in terms of evidence was against Lee, Tang and Lam, the trio who received the heroin at Boggley Creek, and Wong, the survivor of the capsized rubber dinghy launched from the Pong Su. It was pretty clear they all had had their hands on the heroin at some point. Plus, the phone records and conversations recorded by the hidden listening device were damning. Far more challenging would be assembling evidence to prove that the entire North Korean crew knew about the heroin being on board. In preparing the case against Lee, Tang, Lam and Wong, the police discovered that the real Chin Kwan Lee was living in Singapore and not connected to their investigation in any way. The man claiming to be Lee had entered Australia using a stolen passport. They got an idea of what type of person they might be dealing with when Lee took off his shirt. Despite his clean-cut appearance, he had heavy tattoo work across his back, chest and shoulders, showing a half-done Chinese dragon. Across his back were four Chinese characters basically translating to outside the law. So now police had to rely on a tried-and-true method to find out who this cocky English-speaking guy really was. I think it was actually through his fingerprints um, that we found who he actually was. Police boss, Des Appleby. He, he turns up to be a guy called Tan. He had been previously arrested in Denmark for was five and a half kilos um, and was imprisoned and then escaped and turned up here some years later. Wee Kui Tan had been arrested in Denmark in early 2001. He was caught with almost six kilograms of heroin in his suitcase upon arrival in the country. Danish police took his fingerprints and uploaded them to the Interpol database. These fingerprints matched the ones taken by Australian police two years later. For the sake of clarity, we're going to keep referring to him by the name we've got to know him by, Lee. Turns out this man has quite the backstory. He most certainly was shot. Lee claimed he was shot in the lower leg after breaking out of his Copenhagen jail. I found some Danish newspaper reports which say Lee and his Norwegian cellmate used forks to loosen cement around the bricks of their cell. But Lee told his Australian lawyers a more spectacular account. Lee claimed the crime syndicate he was working with had exploded a jail wall to get him out. Either way, Lee made it back to Bangkok. Lee told his Australian lawyers that he was working for four men who had raised him from when he was an orphan child. They'd educated him at one of Singapore's most exclusive schools. It wasn't until Lee had graduated that his uncles finally revealed to Lee that they were, in fact, international drug traffickers. And they told him that he owed them a debt. So, perhaps reluctantly, he agreed to do the Denmark job. When he finally got back to Bangkok, Lee told his uncles that the drug trafficking life wasn't for him. Apparently that didn't go down too well. Lee claimed one of his uncles shot him in the leg as a reminder there was no escaping the trade. But Celeste wasn't convinced by this dramatic tale. 
While there was no doubt Lee had been shot, she believes it was most likely for another reason. You can't blame him for, for trying to minimise what he's facing, but um, no, I think more likely was that he'd obviously done something that didn't impress the Mr Biggs above him and his uncles, and they were showing them who was boss. With Lee's history emerging, some of the comments he'd made to Tang in the Tarago began to make more sense. I'm telling you, I have been in this industry for a long time. And let me tell you, I know who's the boss behind the scenes. But what about Tang, the oldest of the onshore syndicate men involved in the Pongsu story? He didn't come to Australia on a false passport like Lee or Lam. He even used his own credit card to pay for the hire car to ferry Lee and Lam around. In our first episode, we described Tang as the tiniest minnow in a story all about the little fish. As a journalist, I occasionally come across a person or a group of people who get caught up in something that costs them a quarter of their life in jail. And whenever this happens, I always wonder about how they got to that point. For Teng, it was a failed business venture in Malaysia that snowballed into a 20,000 US dollar debt to a loan shark whose monthly interest rate was 15%. Teng told his Australian lawyer that he'd always been a hard worker whether selling clothes, working in rubber plantations, or waiting tables. He left Malaysia for the United States in 1985 and spent 10 years there working six days a week, 12 hours a day in the restaurant trade. Tang met his wife in the US and saved up 75,000 US dollars to invest in a rubber and wood business back in Malaysia. After a few okay years, Teng's business fell on hard times and he took to gambling to get him out of a hole. But it only made things worse. When he couldn't repay the loan sharks, they proposed a deal. Go to Australia and help out on a job. In return, Teng's debt would be forgiven and he'd get a small sum of extra cash. Des says the deal put to Teng is typical of Asia's big crime syndicates. Then use people like Teng to take the risk. So you know, the people that went to jail were the people that handled the drugs. I get the sense the cops might have a tinge of sympathy for Teng. Teng was always his actual identity. Um, yeah, he was the poor sucker. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, he seemingly became involved because of his, his debts and, and wanting to square those away. Teng paid a high price for getting involved in the Pong Su conspiracy. Because of the weight of evidence against them, Lee, Tang, Wong and Lam were all committed to stand trial and eventually all pleaded guilty to heroin importation. Lee, Lam and Wong were sentenced to up to 24 years in prison. Tang received a 22-year jail term, with parole only a possibility after 15 years. This would mean he would not be there to see his six-year-old son growing up he would never see his elderly parents again. Teng told his Australian lawyer he was too ashamed to admit to them what had happened to him. He wanted them to believe the only reason he didn't visit them anymore was because he was busy working in Australia. Teng did, however, eventually get one small payoff for coming into Australia on his own passport. Well, having his true identity has done himself a favour because he could go home. <laughs> When I started researching for this series, Teng was the only one of the onshore party who had returned home. In his case, Holmes, Malaysia. 
Tang was able to do this because Australian authorities knew exactly who he was and where he was from. The same can't be said for Wong, Lee or Lam. When we started recording, all three were still detained in Australia. We're going to come back to Wong and Lam in a big way in a later episode. We found out a lot more about them and who they really are. The public wouldn't learn about the guilty pleas by Teng, Lee, Wong and Lam until 2006, almost three years after their arrests. A Victorian judge had imposed a suppression order on their case. This was because the separate case against the North Koreans from the Pongsu was still underway. The guilty pleas meant prosecutor John Champion had notched up one win, but could he secure another? Not if Jack Dalziel could help it. It sounds simple, they follow orders, but it's not just that. It's, it's just a way of viewing the world where you have your role, you do as you're told, and you simply cannot understand their way of thinking by just using our own experience. By spending time with his new clients, Jack was getting to grips with how North Korean society worked. Though Jack was a dogged, quiet achiever, and the Pongsu crew's barrister, Peter Farris QC, was outgoing and outspoken, they were an effective pairing. One of Jack's first tasks was to work through the thousands of pages of federal police evidence to prepare for the committal hearing for the Pongsu's 30 crew. It was a task that dominated his days and nights. The hearing was before Melbourne magistrate Duncan Reynolds. He would decide whether the evidence against each crew member was strong enough for them to stand trial in Victoria's Supreme Court. The committal hearing was a huge logistical exercise. Remains Court 3.3, it's enormous. It's a ceremonial court, it's huge. Susan Armour was the Commonwealth's senior instructing solicitor for the Pong Su case. It was her job to make sure the case ran smoothly and that the defence lawyers had access to everything they needed. The hearing took place in a special room at Melbourne's County Court. It was the only courtroom big enough to fit the 30 accused men and their lawyers. So we had all of the accused were way at the other end of the court. Australian police and prosecutors had set themselves a huge task in charging each of them individually. Here's Celeste and Des. The committal itself was five months. There's 30 people on the vessel and ultimately that's 30 different criminal cases. So what did each individual do on the vessel? And it's circumstantial because um, we weren't on the vessel and they're not telling us what happened. So there's no direct evidence of what went on. So we had to reconstruct um, what was happening on the vessel and look for evidence of what people, individuals were doing. And it's extremely difficult. It takes a long time. And and in past cases, they've gone just for the captain and, and the key high office holders on the vessels and let the, the bulk of the yeah. crew go. And in a sense, that's not a bad strategy. We chose to charge them all. The committal hearing was long and complicated. Lots of expert witnesses were called to flesh out the case against the Pongsu crew. The prosecution made special mention of the large bundles of US cash found on the crew. Video taken by police at the time of processing the crew shows that some members had as much as 2,000 US dollars, which was a lot of money for the average North Korean. The men from the Pongsu listened intently to the translation of evidence and were polite and compliant for the most part. 
but Susan Armour remembers the one time they were anything but. We had one time in the committal proceeding where there was a code blue. A code blue is an incident which requires court security to attend. The fellow giving evidence about the political system in North Korea, he was saying things which were being translated or interpreted for all the crew that were not complimentary, perhaps, to the regime. And the next thing we knew, they're all on their feet, calling out and punching the air. Susan is now a Victorian magistrate. Despite the code blue, she says she wasn't too worried. They were doing what they were required to do. To show demonstrate loyalty to North Korea was my take on it. Watching the crew from the gallery was the enigmatic North Korean, John Hackbom. He was in Australia as the owner of the Pongsu Shipping Company. But Australian intelligence agencies thought he was most likely a part of North Korea's security services. Hackbom was in his 30s. He had an athletic build. He often dressed in black and had a gold-plated watch on his left wrist. Those who met him say his face never gave away what he was thinking. I asked Susan if she thought the crew's show of defiance was to impress Hackbom. I'm just speculating, but I wonder if that show was to impress him, perhaps. Entirely possible. Yeah. Everyone who met Hackbom while he was in Australia said there was something about him that set him apart from his fellow North Koreans. Here's the Pongsu crew's lawyer, Jack Delzeal. But for general conversation or if you had a meal or being out or driving around, his English was adequate, extremely intelligent, and um, he grasped subtleties of our legal system and society. I think that he was trying to trying to understand because it helped him deal with the case uh, very easily. From what I gather, he'd been to school in uh, Poland and uh, travelled to Russia. He'd been to various other... I asked federal police detective Celeste about the suspicion Hakbom was from North Korean intelligence. Probably was, and that's probably something that another agency dealt with. <laughs> AFP. Australia's counter-spy agency, the Australian Secret Intelligence Organisation, or ASIO, took an interest in Hackbomb and those who were in regular contact with him. North Korean intelligence had, and still has, a formidable reputation for kidnapping, assassination and acts of terrorism abroad, such as the downing of a South Korean airliner before the 1988 Olympics in Seoul. A Korean Airlines plane has disappeared over Burma and may have crashed into the sea or dense jungle. 115 people were on board the plane. A South Korean inquiry into a 1987 bombing of an airplane has found North Korea is to blame. The disaster killed 115 people, landing the communist nation on the US list of suspected terrorists. I'm not saying Hackbomb was here to do anything like that. There's nothing to suggest that. But his presence along with a handful of other stern-looking men from Pyongyang had people connected with the Pong Su case looking over their shoulders. Prosecutor John Champion. We were told the likelihood is, was that there were North Korean agents that were circulating around. Um, we did get security briefings from our own personal security point of view, so we had to be mindful of some aspects like that. I mean, we were given some pretty straightforward and common-sense advice, um, things like uh, don't leave your laptop in the motor car. Um, you might want to think about putting some security systems in at your homes, those sorts of things. I mean, there was talk about the possibility of, of uh, agents from other countries 
looking, looking around for opportunities. For all that, John says he never felt unsafe while he was prosecuting the Pongsu crew. And as for Jack, well, he got to know the North Koreans better than anyone. There was one other interesting character among the supposed Pongsu owners in Australia. Originally, Kim Nam, Kim Chu Nam, came out here, possibly with John Bomb, I don't know. Kim Chu Nam is the man we heard about last episode from the United Nations North Korea expert, Hugh Griffiths. There are two of direct interest to me. One is Kim Chu Nam. Hugh told us that Kim Chu Nam was high up at another North Korean shipping company, penalised by the UN and the United States in 2017 for selling coal and fuel in breach of international rules. There is no doubt both Kim Chu Nam and John Hak Bom were well aware of the details of the Pongsu's voyage to Australia. Both were at Singapore's Plaza Hotel in late March 2003 to sign documents to arrange for the change in flag on the Pongsu from North Korea to Tuvaluan. Hak Bom signed as the ship's owner, while Chu Nam signed as the manager. Out of all the visiting North Koreans, solicitor Jack Dalziel spent most of his time with Hak Bom. I asked Jack whether he thought Hak Bom might have been a North Korean intelligence operative. I didn't. People would say it, I realise, but um, because, you know, he was... I don't know why they... I mean, I, I don't know why they said it, but, but I, I mean, I, they've got no basis for that. <laughs> but it's just that he was intelligent. Yeah. My, my perception yeah. was that he'd been out of the country more and just had other dealings with other cultures and people and was just more able to be um, sort of deal with other people, which then gave him, people interpret that as he's some sort of, you know, he's an extra ability, whereas other guys... When Pongsu director Kim Chu Nam was in Australia, he stayed at the North Korean embassy. He was shorter, thinner and older than Hak Bom. Hak Bom told police he preferred not to say where he was staying for security reasons. Because the legal process around the Pongsu took so long, it meant Jack, Hak Bom and various other North Koreans spent plenty of time together. Jack took them to the Asian food buffets at Melbourne's Crown Casino, some eateries in Footscray, and down to Lawn to see where the Pongsu's heroin came ashore. Well, they were just stuck here in between um, events and the case. There's a lot of time where there's nothing happening, you know, week to week and day to day. So there's a lot of time in between. So no, I just would show them around. and my, They met my mum and dad up in the country. We took Seymour, up in, up in Seymour, yeah, land out of town. Yeah, and so what did your mum make of him? My mum was probably, she probably found John charming. <laughs> As I say, he was a very friendly guy. And anyone would. He was a nice bloke, easy to get along with. That's John Hackbomb that Jack's talking about. John was someone able to just uh, mix with people and talk and strike a conversation. I asked Jack about one of the most contentious points in the whole Pongsu affair the North Korean proposition that the ship belonged to a private company and had nothing to do with the state. So, I mean, I'll, I'll never know. But on the face of it, it was a company that was um, had a management. I just think that whether it be private or not, that they were clearly making their own decisions. I don't know. Hackbomb didn't always seem to toe the official line, though. 30 detained crew members had strenuously denied that Wong and the drowned man had ever been on board the Pongsu 
But Hackbomb gave the police a document from head office in North Korea that put a hole in that story. The crew list for uh, when they went in there, which had 32 names on it, <laughs> and had two extra names. This crew list was given to port authorities in Indonesia. It's a puzzle as to why Hackbomb gave over the document. But Des Appleby immediately recognised its importance to the case. Prosecutor John Champion also pounced on it. There was a time in the voyage of the Pong Su when the records revealed that there were 30 people on board. And after a, a trip to either Nampo or to Jai Mai Do, uh, there were 32 people. So the Pong Su at some stage picked up two more people probably Ta Song Wong and the man who died on the, the journey ashore. Ta Sa Wong wasn't one of the names on the list, but police were certain that was a false name anyway. The important thing was that the crew increased from 30 to 32 men. In May 2004, more than a year after the Pong Su was captured by Australian forces at sea, Magistrate Duncan Reynolds ended the extraordinarily long committal process with what was essentially a split points decision. The ship's captain, chief mate and head engineer were committed for trial after Magistrate Duncan Reynolds ruled that a jury could conclude that each was possessed of the knowledge of this criminal enterprise. The Pongsu's captain, Master Sun, the chief mate and chief engineer were committed to stand trial for aiding and abetting the heroin import. But Magistrate Reynolds ruled there was not enough evidence against the other 27 crew including political secretary Choi. In relation to the 27 crew members, the magistrate found that a jury could only speculate as to what they knew about the alleged shipment based on circumstantial evidence. So Choi and most of the other crew were sent straight out to the Baxter Immigration Detention Centre in South Australia to await deportation. And Master Sun and his two senior officers were sent back to prison. It was at this point that police and the prosecution made a huge decision. Here's Celeste. Putting people to prosecution, it's not a decision that's made lightly either, um, particularly in relation to the political secretary. He was discharged after committal and the AFP were of the opinion that there was sufficient evidence to prove that he had knowledge of what was going on and the DPP agreed with that. Despite what Magistrate Reynolds found, Police and prosecutors believed they had enough to nail political secretary Choi, so they went out to Baxter Detention Centre and re-arrested him. In legal terminology, they had decided to ignore the magistrate's opinion and would directly present him to the Supreme Court of Victoria. This moved the Pong Su case into delicate and very interesting territory. Publicly and in court, police and prosecutors had been careful not to say the North Korean regime was behind the heroin importation. Whatever they might have suspected about government involvement or support, they didn't have the evidence to prove it. There's a big difference between the truth and being able to prove it. Jack and I spoke about the significance of the move to go after the political secretary. You know, it seemed like they were having a bob each way in terms of saying, we're not saying the whole North Korean regime is behind this, yet at the same time, but the political secretary, who is part of that broader regime, must have known because he is part of a you know, chain of command. Well, correct, they were. Coming up on the last voyage of the Pong Su, 
The Pongsu itself, I, got, I came to hate the vessel. So as a father, I thought that it is my last mission for my sons. They were holding on to the top of the fence and they were crying out, help. The last voyage of the Pong Su is brought to you by the newsrooms of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. To read more and to watch the videos referenced in this episode, head to our websites. While you're there, why not take out a subscription to help power independent Australian journalism and productions like this podcast? If you're enjoying this series, leave a review on iTunes and recommend us to a friend. The Last Voyage of the Pong Su is reported by Richard Baker. Field recording and audio editing by executive producer Rachel Dexter. Narrative consultant is Kate Cole-Adams. Siobhan McHugh is consulting producer. Music and composition by Vicky Hansen. Sound design and mixing by John Greenfield. Assistant producer is Margaret Gordon. And Tom McKendrick is head of audio. Thanks to our cast of actors. Chi Kwan Lee is played by Andy Song. Kyung Fa Teng is played by Anthony Ting. And Yao Kim Lam is played by Jason Chong. Casting by Catapult Casting. Script translations by Yan Zhuang. Additional audio from Channel 9, NBC and Asia Brief. The reading you heard at the start of this episode was an excerpt from Diving Into the Wreck by Adrienne Rich, read by Jason Chong. <laughs>